0: A playlist original. It's safe to say It's a Sin has been the TV sensation of 2021, achieving mass critical acclaim and, I think, changing the landscape of LGBTQ drama forever. In this It's a Sin special, I'll be chatting to Nathaniel Hall, who plays Donald Bassett, a.k.a. the lovable actor boyfriend of Ollie Alexander's character Richie Tozer. Nathaniel is also an HIV activist who contracted the condition at the age of 16 after having sex for the first time. Through his work as a theatre maker, he has been fighting the stigma that unfortunately still surrounds HIV, as well as educating people about just how far treatment has come since the 1980s when It's a Sin is set
1: hi hello good morning how are you i'm all right thank you i'm quite chirpy for a monday morning actually oh,
0: very lucky i didn't sleep well so i am very much the opposite but <laughs> well
1: okay hopefully hopefully some of what my my chirpiness will rub off on you jesse
0: fingers crossed
1: <laughs> it's normally the other way around normally mondays are not a good time for me so
0: <laughs> um thank you so much for taking the time to do this because i'm sure you're very busy um... oh, uh please can you introduce yourself and give your pronouns
1: yeah my name's nathaniel hall and my pronouns are he and him
0: and you've done so much in a short space of time, but it only seems right to start with your play First Time. Um, so can you sum it up for me, please?
1: Yeah, so First Time is um, an autobiographical solo show. It's all about my experiences growing up with HIV. I was diagnosed with HIV um, two weeks before my 17th birthday, so really still a child when I was diagnosed. And I lived in silence about that diagnosis or relative silence for about 15 years until um, after a, a bit of a mental breakdown, I that I wanted to tell my family, which I did. And then I did what any self-respecting person would do is turn it into a show and perform it to hundreds of people every night. <laughs> so yeah, so 2018, the show premiered in, in Greater Manchester. Then it went to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe in 2019. And much to uh, the surprise of this kid from Stockport, it did really very well. Got lots and lots of five-star reviews, won two awards, and then was published by Nick Hearn Books. So it was available to buy. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah there, well, there's a copy of it there um and yeah and then unfortunately currently on hold because of uh, another virus came on the scene miss rona as we know uh, but hopefully this autumn will be back on tour across the uk
0: what was your motivation behind putting it on uh the
1: motivation about behind first time um if we go back to 2017, you know, I I, tra- I trained as a as a in theatre and performance. I knew I wanted to have a career in the arts. I was always told that I was I was good, that I, I had the potential as a, as an actor, as a creator, a writer, a maker, and and I did I did go into that industry and I did do some work and I had the odd job here and there and then I was working for an amazing theatre company um, called Twenty Stories High. But I, I, I was always sort of either I was company stage manager or I was behind the scenes and and I was never really I never. really felt like I'd really reached my potential in terms of what I thought I could do as a performer or a writer and then in 2017 my my life was in a bit of a bad way I was in a toxic relationship I was relying on alcohol and drugs at that time uh, just to get me through and I realised it was because of the ongoing trauma of this thing that had happened to me when I was you know when I was 16 uh, and getting that diagnosis so young Uh, the diagnosis at that time was very it was even though it was in the age of medication for HIV, it was still very different to what you would be told today. So I was given a prognosis of around 30, 35 to 40 years le- of life left. Um, You know, I was also told that there'd be lots of complications from medications. You also weren't put onto medication straight away. So I lived for eight years without medication. So living with the anxiety of what the virus might be doing to my body, that I can pass it on to other people, to sexual partners. So in 2017, that really all came to a head. And I had this mental breakdown, which I always thought they, um, they happened like... Suddenly, but it was like a car crash in slow motion. It was like over the course of a few years, my life just sort of fell apart around me. That was when I decided, I realised it was, it was it was because I was holding this secret about my HIV. And I realised at that time, by not saying it out loud, I just bought into the narrative that it was something to be ashamed of. So, you know, that's, that's the prevailing narrative around HIV is that it's a shameful thing, that you deserved it or you have lax morals because of the way you caught it. And I realised, I was like, oh, if I say it out loud, then all of a sudden that can't be weaponised against me anymore. So there was this light bulb moment. And and so I wrote a letter to my parents and my family first because I, I, I tried to tell them for so many years and couldn't and then went on this journey to writing the show. But I think the idea around writing the show was actually to force my hand because I'd been trying for so long and I was like, well, actually, if I could set the ball rolling in motion on this thing then I have to tell them and actually I got commissioned to make the show so then it was like right it has it has to happen now and so so at first it was really a thing for me both personally and professionally it was also to prove you know the talent that I thought I had I could get out on stage Uh, and that also personally I could get this thing out this this secret but but What what I didn't realise is what it would do for other people. Uh, And, you know, since 2018 and the impact it has had has completely taken me by surprise uh, because originally it was was more about going through a process for me. And actually, I, I said to myself, even if the show doesn't do that well... It's really important for me to just get up on stage and say these things. And if I go through that process and it takes me to a better place in my life, then I'll be happy. But yeah, it's had an impact way beyond that.
0: And as you say, you didn't tell your family about your status for about 15 years. What was it like when they came to see the play and how did they feel about being included in it?
1: Yeah. Oh, gosh. It was a little bit like family therapy, really, to be honest. I mean, I wrote the letter to them and that was quite a way before the show was on. It was probably about 10 months or maybe nearly a year before the play was actually on. And, and obviously within that, I, I detailed what they needed to know and, and the things I wanted them to know about my my HIV status. But in the in the interim period, we didn't talk massively about it because it's not the sort of thing that you just sort of all of a sudden you go from fifteen years of not talking about to talking about at the dinner table. But yeah, when they came to see it, obviously it was really really hard for them. I remember they <laughs> they came on the last night and the the theatre where I was doing the show. They were like should we reserve the front row for them? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> it's just like, I don't want to be able to like, have them right in my eyeline all the way through the show. Because the, the thing with the show is, is that it, it's, it's a what's and all piece. So there's things I say in there that most people would never tell their parents. <laughs> but for me, it was really important that the show wasn't glossing over or sort of um hiding some of the the darker aspects or you know the more difficult aspects of my story so so they had to sit through that and that was hard for them you know and I could see my mum and dad finding it very very difficult at parts and my mum at the end of it said that my dad hadn't held a hand that long in about 10 years which (laughs) made me sort of a little bit a little bit sad but, um, but then my mum and dad came to see the show again in Edinburgh and my mum was on the front row that time and, and, and sobbed like right from the start. And I was like, this bit's funny. Don't be, don't be crying at this bit. <laughs> but she was like, she's like, oh, I was just so proud of you. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's, it what was nice is that the show opened up a conversation for us and also the letter did as well. And I say this to lots of people, which you've got something quite difficult or a difficult conversation that you want to start with your loved ones. And often that's they're the hardest people to have those conversations with. It's easy to have it with your therapist or a stranger, but to have it with someone close to you is really, really hard. So, you know, I say something like a letter is really, really a great way to do it because you can get everything out. you can You can edit it. You can make sure it's exactly as you want to say it. And then you can send it to them and then you don't need to watch their reaction because sometimes their, their initial reaction can be quite difficult. And that's one, one thing I say about when people are coming out, even if your parents or your family love you, they might as when you come out, their initial facial reaction might be something that hurts because they know you're going to have a more difficult life or, you know, and actually it's, it's, it's good. You can have some distance from that and then allow the conversation to happen naturally when the time comes. So, yeah. So I think my mum mainly is, is in there for comedy effects because my mum's a very funny person. So most of the stories about my mum in in the show uh, get a laugh. (laughs)
0: And it's such a very clever. you've got lip-syncing, you've got silly string, you've got audience interaction. You could have just done a sort of straightforward flea bag style monologue. Why did you choose to present the story in this way?
1: <laughs> oh, um, Because I went to, a th- I, I, I trained at a place called Breton Hall and that was the style of theatre that we learned. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a very specific style. And I, I remember my tutors saying to me, if your stage is not a complete and utter mess by the end of your show, you've not done your job properly. I think I, I wanted to explore how to to dramatise quite complex things. Uh, you know, you, I had, particularly at the Fringe, I had 65 minutes to, to get a lot, 15 years of story. And, and so a, a monologue, whilst it's great, can be quite restrictive. And what I wanted to be able to do was was bring lots of different ideas and concepts together in one moment so for instance there's a moment where i talk about the the, the tablets the pills that i have to take um, but also the, the the pills that i've taken you know recreationally that have got me through difficult times and then there's a there's a link also to will young because the guy that and um, i first had sex with looked like will young And so then there's this moment where I sit and I start having pills for breakfast, listening to Will Young, and then there's more and more pills appearing and appearing because I've said, I wonder how many pills I've swallowed in my life, you know, how many ones that keep me alive and ones that have got me through difficult times. And then by the end of the song, I'm lip syncing, I'm crying. It's sort of painfully funny. And also heartbreaking at the same time. But what it does is it it shows the the isolation of what what using recreational drugs can do, or how people sometimes might lean on them. It, it, it brings so many ideas together in one moment, and it's done in three minutes. And so as an audience, you can experience and feel that that all those things without me having to spoon feed it through words. And also it's a one person show. So there's just you on stage and you've got to keep people engaged and entertained, move from a clinic to Menorca, then to your bedroom. It's like you've got to move very fast between things. So that was the reason why I decided to sort of present it in that way. And yeah, it paid off because people seem to enjoy it.
0: (laughs) And one of the most powerful moments is when you list things that happened after your diagnosis and in it you step away from that sort of performer side of yourself. It's that hard when all that you're left with is you and your story on the stage.
1: Yeah, that pulls the rug out from underneath your feet, I think. And when we made the show, we crafted it in such a way that that moment really hits. So that comes just after the diagnosis moment. And that was really a reflection of the process of making the show because actually telling the early part of the story was really quite fun. You know, it was like thinking about youthful memories, coming of age stories about secret liaisons with the head boy in the attic, and going on holiday. I go to the prom and all those fun memories of that time. And then there's this moment where I'm, I'm a you see this young person. It's camp. It's fun. We're in the prime of life, just in that moment where, you know, you're like going into adulthood and then all of a sudden you're hit, bang in the face with with the diagnosis. And I think what we wanted to do at that moment was remind people that this isn't a piece of fiction and this isn't somebody else's story. This is the person on stage's story. And so we almost sort of got to a point, um, myself as a writer and my director, where we were like, where do you go like what do you do <laughs> what do you do after that moment you know and and also then how do you tell another 15 years of, of life in you know when you've got you, you're already halfway through your show you're sort of 30 minutes in so that was why we decided to do that list and actually what I did was I I wrote a the, the longest list you could ever imagine it was a huge spreadsheet and I did my whole life I did it season by season so each year broken down into four seasons what happened in the world at that time, significant things that happened in sort of LGBT history and things like civil partnerships, equal marriage, that kind of thing, music that was in the charts, films that happened, cultural moments, and then any memory that I could remember. And then that list, what we did is we sort of took random memories and then mixed them all up so that what you get is a mixture of and a juxtaposition of, of some very, very funny things right next to some very, very hard-hitting things but the idea is yeah at that point you as an audience you just see me and all the theatrics are gone and that was really yeah like I could say reflection of us going I just don't really know how else to tell this part of the story other than to tell you these things that happened to me in, in, in terms of performing it it's not necessarily it, it, the first few performances it was really really hard But then what happens when you make a show like this is it you become a character anyway. So even those moments where it feels like I'm being very, very natural, I'm actually still, in a sense, in a character to protect me. But for the audience, it feels very much like they're just seeing Nathaniel on stage at that moment.
0: I'm obsessed with how pivotal culture is to changing people's mindsets. And you acknowledge the importance of art and creativity and inspiring change too. Why do you think that is? And have you witnessed that shift in your own audiences?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's, it's it's amazing, isn't it? One of the difficult things I had when I was writing the first time as a HIV activist is normally when I go out and I do, you know, before I, I made the show, I, I used to go out and tell my story with George House Trust, a charity, and we'd go out and tell our stories to help uh, trainee nurses, or we go to GP surgeries or to staff training days, or even to schools and colleges to help people understand the stigma and the discrimination people with HIV face. And often that's full of education. Obviously, there's some really key points that you need to have home when you're doing those kind of talks, you know, about testing is really, really important. You know, you need to get on medication nice and early. If you're on medication, you're going to lead a, a long life. And now we know if you're on medication, you can't pass the virus on. So all those key messages are always like just really embedded. And every interview I do as well, it's like they're all there, ready to go. So I want everyone to hear them. When you make a show, that's so much harder because it's a piece of entertainment. People aren't necessarily coming for those things. And so how do you get them in? without it feeling like a lecture. So in First Time, you know, we added in a quiz sort of element which fit with the style of the show, which is all sort of, you know, each moment is very, very different and it's very upbeat and the quiz is very, very silly and very, very tongue in cheek and gets lots of laughs, but hammers home those points. But what's been really interesting, actually, is watching the impact that It's a Sin on television has had, because actually It's a Sin doesn't have any educational points in it, really. In fact, it, it reinforces some of the old myths and stereotypes because it's a history of HIV and it's set in the 1980s. And I was very worried that those myths, you know, when we see those scenes of people scrubbing cups and scrubbing in the shower and saying, can I hug you? Can I do this? And not knowing would allow some of those old myths to resurface in the National Consciousness. But what we've seen is the opposite, is like it's been this opportunity to educate where the conversation has started again. So drama, I think, and and art can be a really, particularly if it's powerful and it gets people talking, that's all that matters because it's the start of the conversation. And then as long as the right people are leading or supporting that conversation, then it can be an amazing tool for educating and getting a point across. So yeah, I've really, in the last few years, really learned lots about how, as a dramatist, you can do that.
0: And you know in the introduction to the play that it's been one hell of a journey, but did you ever imagine being part of a culture icon like um, It's a Sin?
1: Oh my gosh, <laughs> absolutely no. I just... I couldn't believe when I got offered the role. I knew about I knew Russell T. Davis was writing It's a Sin. It was originally called Boys. And he was in the stages, the latter stages of writing it when my show first premiered. And, and another actor that's in It's a Sin, David Gregan Jones, who I know through someone else, had come to see my show. And he knows Russell. And he'd said to Russell, You've got to come and see this show, because obviously, you know, there's just so many parallels. But he couldn't come and see it, unfortunately. So I was really cheeky and I messaged him on Instagram. Um, and I don't recommend this in terms of <laughs> professional conduct, but I was just like, I'd love to ch- have a chat with you, expecting no reply. And he, he got straight back to me and he was like, oh no, absolutely, let's go for coffee. So I went for a coffee with Russell T. Davis in, in Manchester. <laughs> I was just sat <laughs> like in this surreal moment in front of one of you know my absolute screenwriting legend um, icons. And then from that, you know, he wanted to hear my story and, and and get a sense of how that might influence what he was writing. And then his producer, Phil Collinson, came to see my show before it went to the Edinburgh Fringe, and they invited me to audition. So, I mean, I still had to audition like everyone else. I auditioned for two parts. But I found out, I was in Edinburgh, um, I'd just got a five-star review from the stage newspaper, and we were celebrating that in the bar, and then I got a phone call from my agent to say I'd got the part in it to sin. And I just, yeah... <laughs> couldn't believe just could not could not believe it and it still really hasn't sung him to goodness even yeah. though it's been on telly and and yeah. and you know all the hype around it it's still very surreal
0: and why do you think it's taken so long for there to be a show like this from a British perspective versus the many American portrayals of the crisis
1: oh yeah that's a big question isn't it <laughs> um I mean in one word homophobia <laughs> I think is how you could sum it up I know that trying to get um, I mean, let's first of all, you know, HIV doesn't only affect uh, gay people or men who have sex with men. You know, over fifty percent of people living with HIV in the UK are heterosexual. Over a third of people in the, in the UK living with HIV are women. So it isn't just a gay man's disease. But obviously, in the early stage of the epidemic, it did spread through the gay population very, very quickly. And so I think it comes down to structural and systemic homophobia, really. Guessing gay drama on telly is not easy you can count on one hand or maybe 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 it goes to two just you know the sort of gay dramas that we've had we had queer as folk we've had the l word and more recently gentleman jack Uh, it's a sim i mean there may be a few Uh others that i'm missing but actually drama specifically focused on lgbtq lives and and about lgbtq lives is is not very present and i know that russell even at, at his level Found it very very difficult to get It's a Sin commissioned. The BBC refused it, ITV refused it, and Channel Four said it needs to go down from eight episodes to to five. I think that TV commissioners are nervous and think that cisgendered heterosexual audiences aren't interested in LGBTQ stories. But actually, our stories are universal and. Uh, And and I think what It's a Sin has really proven is there is actually appetite for these stories. And I think some of the other channels, the, the way that television and film is made now, particularly with Netflix and the streaming services, I think they're forcing the five sort of big channels in the UK to really think about what stories people do want to hear and want to see but yeah it's it's very hard to sell a gay drama in inverted commas to television commissioners and it it needs people like russell to continue to push for it and then for a new wave of, of talent as well to continue to go these stories are important these stories are funny sexy interesting dramatic and so that we get that representation improved um, across the board
0: um and do you think if you'd seen more destigmatizing HIV representation in culture when you were first diagnosed it wouldn't have taken you so long to tell people about your status
1: um yeah, I think so. I think when I was diagnosed, the you know, I knew about HIV. I'd watched a, a film at school and um, I still was under Section 28 when I was at school. That was repealed in 2003. So that was the legislation that stopped schools talking about homosexuality. We watched a really out of date video about, you know, a, a gay guy who was dying from AIDS, basically. And and all that, that sort of reinforcing my mind was that if you're gay, this is the thing you get and you sort of deserve it. And, and that was the narrative. So I never really saw a positive story about HIV. And we, up until it's the same, we haven't had any, like we just said, any real. Specific television or th- drama from a British perspective about it, and actually even the great um, American plays and, and films and the European ones, they they very much focus on the history. You know, uh, they focus on the activism and and, and and rightly so. Some incredible stories and what it what, what it feels like to as a community live through in inverted commas essentially a plague, but but never really saw stories of people living with HIV. I'm not the first to tell a story of living with HIV, but I don't think there are many. And so that was one of the real drivers for me was to create something where people, people without HIV could understand the stigma and what it feels like. And the psychological impact, because it's actually mainly the psychological impact that impacts my life, not the physical impact, but also that for other people who were diagnosed they could go, ah, oh, yes, I get it. There are other people who are feeling and going through the same things as I am. And for those people that, you know, may be diagnosed in the future, for them to go, oh, I understand some of the things I'm going to face. And maybe that they can get through those things quicker or reach out for help quicker and not sort of fester away in silence and shame like I did for so long.
0: And why do you think it's important stories like It's in which really celebrate the lives of the men we lost and the fun they had get told?
1: Oh, yeah. I think Russell just played an absolute blinder with It's a Sin, because quite rightly, he showed the joy and the life. And actually, you can't understand or get your head around death and loss and the tragedy of that without understanding life. And so what Russell did in that, you know, we only had five episodes in a miniseries very, very cleverly did was very quickly show us the richness of these lives and these friends and these friendships being forced and then the absolute tragedy of that being taken away so early for those young men. And when he wrote Queer as Folk, you know, I know Russell quite well. And he he actually he avoided HIV and AIDS as a conscious choice because it was the first major drama about gay men or gay men's lives on telly. And he didn't want our lives to always be about tragedy and always to be those narratives and actually just wanted to show queer lives joyfully as well, you know, and, and, and in all their complexity. And I think it is really important because often our stories, when we tell them, can be related to... Trauma. And that's because, you know, we know LGBTQ people are more likely to face challenges in our life and more likely to be bullied at school, statistically more likely to suffer from depression and anxiety, statistically more likely to become addicted to drugs or alcohol, you know, and that's just a fact. But I think what sometimes we can do is miss celebrating the diversity and the colour and the different way of living as well that LGBTQ people can bring to the world because obviously we don't live lives that follow the set narrative, you know, necessarily because those options weren't always available to us. So I think it's really important that we show that and also that we show that unapologetically because for me it's not about LGBTQ people assimilating into heteronormative culture. Like, it's amazing that we were now allowed, you know, allowed, inverted (laughs) covers, because it sounds so so awful, that we can get married, that we've been given permission by, you know, the heterosexual world, that we can now have those rights. That, you know, it's incredible that we have those things. But if LGBTQ people don't want to follow that path, that's fine. And I don't think we should be showing portrayals and representations that are safe and tasteful for a a cisgendered heteronormative audience. (laughs) It's like, actually people, I need people outside the LGBTQ community live diverse lives as well. And every life is as valid as another. So I think it's so important that we show it in all its rainbow glory, you know, from uh, lesbian couples with children through to men who are living in polyamorous relationships through to trans people, I, just that whole diversity is so important. And I, I'm really excited for the future because I feel like we're at a stage where our community has this confidence now to start demanding that our stories are shown in that
0: way. And I think that also links to the fact that... uh people are pushing more for having LGBT plus people work on queer projects specifically um, and russell stirred up a lot of debate when he mentioned the importance of casting gay actors in gay roles um what difference do you think it makes having lgbtq plus people working on projects like this
1: yeah oh my gosh people straight people really love to clutch the pearls when we have this conversation <laughs> <laughs> they get really up in arms and it's like oh stop censoring yourself in the debate because it's not about you, you know? <laughs> so, Because then they go, well, can't a gay person play a straight role? And it's like, and then Russell said something very clever. He was like, we've been playing straight since we were 10. Like, we've been pretending to be straight, to fit in, to be safe. We have to pretend and live. And that's exhausting. Even the most loud and out and proud others sometimes are in situations where we tone down our queerness, we tone down it so that we feel so that we're safe. So you know, I thought that was fantastic. And and Russell said it again very well. He's like, you know, straight cisgender people don't just dominate the playground, they own it. So, you know, I think you watch It's a Sin and you see very, very clearly that there is a rapport on screen with everyone that's in that cast. And that cast is all all the gay characters are played by gay people. There's trans people, there's non-binary representation in there. The director was gay, the writer was gay, the casting director was gay. And I think you're very, very... There is a set of codes and behaviours that, that that queer people have that we have between ourselves and also in, in in each sort of different section of our community as well because you know gay women lesbian women have their own set and codes and behaviors that they understand and gay men have their own set and trans people do and the bisexual community and then they, they all interplay together as well but what that meant was just that when we had that table read through for it's to sin like none of us had met but there was just straight away a, a chemistry and an understanding and, and you move away from those codes of behaviours becoming stereotypical as well because if we think of something like James Corden and, and the criticism he got for playing that role in the prom and you know being gay face because as a straight person he, he, doesn't, he doesn't understand or know those codes of behaviours as well as we do um, and I think for me the main point really is actually more about equality and equity and they're not the same thing. And there's not an equal playing field at the minute. You know, so as a gay man, as a gay actor, I've been told to tone down my game when I go for straight roles. And, and as though a, a casting director can't get a, around the head that if I've got an earring in, I can't play a straight man or whatever. Or that a straight man can't be slightly effeminate or, you know, <laughs> or whatever. But if, you know, if I'm not getting those roles and then I go... The very few gay roles that do come up that I get sent for. I go to casting and then it's given to a straight man. And I just go, well, where's, well, am I welcome in this industry as, as a gay actor? If you're going, well, the straight men get the straight roles and the, the straight men get the gay roles. <laughs> it's like, where am I welcome in this industry? So there is, there's work to be done, I think, to it to improve obviously, to have more LGBTQ roles across the board. Um, and and I, I'm not saying, you know, a, a straight man can't play a gay, a gay role and vice versa. Of course not. But at the minute, there's not a level playing field. And it's, it's about levelling that up to a point where we can then start to maybe do that.
0: And which trope or stereotype in LGBT culture most annoys you?
1: Oh, which trope or stereotype? Oh, my gosh, there's many. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, one of the things that frustrates me as an actor quite often is when I get sent roles and gay roles, and if they're just smaller roles, uh, maybe in soaps or, or whatever, you can tell when they've been written by a straight person. They just f- fall into the the realm of camp stereotype, and and it, it's really really difficult, and it's a really fine line to walk because those characters do exist. You know, camp gay men do exist but they're just often, when they're written (laughs) by straight people, they're just not quite written right. And I don't think there is an understanding of why gay men use humour and and camp and femininity as a, a, how they use it and why they use it, because it's used as a defence mechanism, it's used as a defence tactic, it's used to deflect, It's, it's used for a whole range of different reasons. And I think a lot of writers just don't quite understand camp very well and so I think it's when camp is written clumsily is the worst for me and I also I think as well sometimes then what people want to do is go do the opposite and they go I want to write a gay character that's not very gay (laughs) you know and it's like well well why you know you know like oh I want to you know I want to see a butch lesbian I want to see a camp gay man I want to see a gym bunny I want to see all (laughs) those I think sometimes the straight world doesn't understand the diversity within the LGBTQ world, you know, I've got a friend who's a a librarian and she's a lesbian and she's quiet and small and bookish and lovely and wonderful in her own way. And then I've got a trans friend who has bright blue hair and is outrageous and massive, you know. So I think that's when the argument about no conversation about us without us comes in. Because actually, when you have Those people present in the room, if they're the writer, if they're the casting director, if they're the performer, you fall away from stereotype and what you get is real portrayals of real people.
0: And you mentioned how close the cast became um, because of the fact that, you know, there was so much to bond over. And it does seem like they really became a family. Do you have any funny onset stories that led from that?
1: <laughs> oh gosh. Funny I wasn't actually on set that much to be honest, because I wasn't in, I was only in one episode. I feel a little bit like those guys, those guys really, really bonded because they were working together like all the time. And I sort of dipped in and out. Um, I mean, when I was on set for my final scene, um, the oh my gosh I remember it was it, it was right at the end of a very very long filming day and they were filming outside so outside shots outside the pink palace which has now become sort of a little gay mecca I keep seeing people posting pictures and it's I know where it's a place in Manchester I don't know on the street and people keep posting pictures outside but um it would have been a really really long day filming and I think it was January so uh, you know it was pretty cold and and I just had my, my last scene by I'm banging on the door trying to get Richie's attention and he's not there we set up all the shots and then set action and and it just poured down with rain and I mean like Mancunian rain can be heavy but this was torrential and then you know they had crane shots and all sorts everything set up big green screen and the director was just like do it again do it again so it's we turned around about three or four times as well and then we just had to stop because Donald's hair is obviously (laughs) like like spiky sticking up like this But after three takes, it was just completely (laughs) flat. And they were just like, we're going to have to stop. And then it was just, I'd never seen a a film crew get out of an area so quickly. It was just absolute carnage. It was a wonderful environment to work in and very, very fun. Uh, Red Productions, the team, um, are just a wonderful, wonderful team. They are so kind and friendly and generous and supportive of everyone and what they're doing. So it was an absolute pleasure to work with them all.
0: And what was your favourite scene to film? I'm expecting one you get absolutely drenched in. <laughs> yeah, although that was
1: quite fun because I was like, oh my gosh, you get that beautiful crane shot, you know, walking down the street and the crane, the crane shot camera lifting up and the rain pouring down. I thought, oh, that was that's going to look great on camera. <laughs> um, I think I what was really fun was doing the show within a show so when we did the chimney sweep and me. Play, trying to play butch and Peter the director going be more butch be more butch and I was like why did you cast me in this role <laughs> um, but the, uh, that was fun because he got to get you know like the fake beard and and the, the, the wig and, and all that sort of stuff and work with David Fleishman and Susie Jenkins who are like at, you know soap acting royalty which was really, really nice to meet them and see them do their thing. But the cameras that they used for that were the old traditional BBC cameras. So the way that that TV drama used to be filmed was multi-camera. So you'd have two, three cameras filming and you you perform it like a play, basically. And you'd, you'd shoot with all the cameras and the cameras are sort of also like slightly hidden in the set. But they're humongous. I mean, they're absolutely massive. Not like the things they use Today. So that was really fun because that was just like going back in time. And it was like actually filming in the 1980s. The, the vases that I smashed, they were uh, obviously sugar glass, but they were like, you have five, that's it. You know, so it's like you, it needs to hit this point here. You've got to get the lines right, you've got and it was you know, quite quite pressured. But in the same sound stage, um, so we had this uh, Victorian cottage built, and then literally so I was doing my lines and you could see behind the cameras a spaceship because on the same day they were filming the scene with the Daleks so there was a spaceship at a Victorian cottage in the same room I was like oh this is just a really magical day of like you know the magic of sort of television and film and seeing all that and I did get to I didn't meet the Daleks but I did see the Daleks and the Daleks even here you go the Daleks have their own dressing room would you believe (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Um and Upson has just hit HBO Max. What do you know of the American response so far?
1: Um, What I've heard so far is good. I've seen some five-star reviews. Rotten Tomatoes, last time I checked, was still on 100%. So that's amazing. And obviously that that collates American reviews, uh, both uh, sort of personal reviews and professional reviews. Uh, I know that the New York Times and the New York Post have both received it very, very well. I'm not sure it will have the same impact here. We've got to remember that America is... A humongous country. (laughs) Um, But I think in pockets of America, it will certainly make waves. And I've got friends in the LGBTQ community in America who've been absolutely desperate. Desperate, desperate, desperate to watch it, and they've been seeing all the media sort of uh, whirlwind around it here, and go, "Oh gosh, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait!" And they've not been disappointed. I've had a few emails and mm. messages saying that they've, it, it's really beautiful. And I know Armistead mopen said it was a masterpiece. So,
0: cool. <laughs> that, <that's how laughs> so I think I, bat, can
1: it? <laughs> you can't, you can't, no. And I think, I think Russell and the producers were just like all, just literally like in all. So yeah, I think it will make waves, and with the right people which is important you know because although it's great that the show has had an impact beyond the lgbtq community here in the uk it's for our community and they're the people that matter and i think that you know we all making it wanted to make sure that we honored <coughs> the lives and, and that we did justice to those lives lost and to those people that are still have to re- grieve and remember those people that they lost as well
0: and um, can you tell me more about your outreach work with dibby theater
1: Yeah. So In Equal Parts is a community-led creative outreach project. My theatre work always tends to have some sort of outreach attached to it, whether that just be some workshops or working with the community. I I try not to, again, it's that thing I mentioned before about no conversation about us without us. So I always try in the work that I'm making to, to ensure that The community it's for and about is involved right from the start. But when coronavirus hit, we realised that there was an opportunity to try and continue the work and the impact of First hire whilst it wasn't on tour. So we managed to secure some funding and In Equal Parts is about us sort of taking I'm um, recognizing that my story um, as a white cisgendered male with HIV uh, a gay male is is the story that everyone knows that's my dog barking if you can hear her in the background
0: oh, um, sorry I'm just gonna she's cool call- I, I can't <laughs> not hear a dog and not gone- like, I need to know everything about this dog
1: it's <laughs> called Peggy come on there's okay. two of them they'll, they'll come in hang on hang on Here we go. They're down here. Peggy, come here. Come on, up to you, come. Say hi. Oh. <laughs> and this, Fred, I'll keep you. them. I'll keep them in here with me because they'll stay quiet for them. Love them, <laughs> I'll, and I'll do the answer again. thank
0: you Sorry, I shouldn't
1: have interrupted you. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. In Equal parts, recognizes that, um, that my story, you know, it's, I mean, my story's had a huge impact. I've been on every news network now. I can you know, it's insane how far my story has gone. But I'm aware that as a white, cisgendered, gay man, my story, people probably know here that my story with HIV is, is one that people know quite well and that actually lots of people don't get the platform that I have. So what it was about was about acknowledging that and um, giving, a, giving a platform to voices that don't get the platform that I've had. So we're making um, a series of short films about other people living with HIV. So we're making three short films one about um, a black British woman with HIV, one um, about an ex-injection drug user and another one about a man who was uh, lives with HIV but was really instrumental in setting up Manchester AIDS Line, which then became George House Trust. And they're all amazing activists in their own right. So showcasing them. And then we've also made a digital creative learning resource for schools, which is available on my website called Act Up and Live. And that's a 30 minutes, to one hour session which looks at the art activism of HIV and how art can be used in social movements and social justice and inspires people, young people to create their own art activism, slogans and posters um, for the future of HIV because the target is to end all new transmissions by 2030. So we've got that. And then also a series of conversations and events as well. So our next one will be on the 30th of April. And that is a conversation between me and Russell T. Davis, which is being hosted by Contact Theatre in Manchester, but it's online. Tickets are available for that now. And that's about us looking at, you know, representations of HIV, all the things we've talked about today, authenticity, how do we represent LGBTQ lives? So, yeah, that runs alongside first time and hopefully keeps first time in people's minds because it's been nearly a year now. It's been over a year. But hopefully we'll be back on the road in the autumn of this year with First Time so audiences can get to see it again.
0: And what's been the most cathartic experience you've had during your years of activism?
1: Oh, gosh. Do you know what? Um, Making the show itself is fantastic and I I mean I don't don't expect everyone who's been through a traumatic experience in their life to have to turn it into a show and perform it but for me it's been a form of therapy and actually a lot of the techniques that I use to make the show including things like uh, recall techniques and rewind therapy techniques uh, are techniques that I still use with my therapist Mm -hmm. and so actually the process of going back to a painful memory or a painful event in a safe environment and then turning it into a memory is really, really, really amazing because trauma, if if unprocessed, it lives in the body, it lives physically. And so I was living with post-traumatic stress disorder and generalized anxiety disorder for a very long time, which I didn't realize. And actually, that's a physical feeling. It's a physical emotion. And And, and until I sort of made the show... I was uh, acting out that trauma or feeling that trauma and having flashbacks and night terrors and all sorts of things on a regular basis. And then as soon as I went through the very painful process of making the show, but after that, something magical happened because what it became was, was a memory. It's a thing that I've sort of processed. I know it happened, but the trauma doesn't impact me on a daily basis. But the hardest thing, the hardest thing to do actually was just after I'd first made the show in 2018, and there would have been a whirlwind of press all around my show. Uh, you know, i have been on BBC Breakfast. You know, I was trending higher than Jennifer Aniston's Bangs on BuzzFeed News. I had to do an extra date because it was so popular. And then it was about the week after and the dust had all settled and all the messages had sort of stopped. And um, and I went to get my hair cut. So in a barber's, which is a relatively mature environment. And as a gay man, often, you know, not always an environment that I feel that comfortable in. Although as I get a bit older, I'm sort of fine now. But, um, you know, he started talking to me about what I did. And I nearly just glossed over it and then I thought no actually I can't stand up on stage or on BBC breakfast and talk about living loudly and proudly with HIV and then when someone asks me in a daily conversation not mention it and so that was when I realized that actually for all the you know the press and all that glitz and glamour as it were actually real activism happens on a daily basis it happens in those little conversations and those little moments and that was when I went I have to I have to say this and it was the that was the hardest moment not saying it on stage it was actually exposing myself in that moment and going I'm a gay man I was diagnosed with HIV when I was 16 I've just made a show about it And actually, you know, it was fine. And we had an amazing conversation and he didn't want to stop cutting my hair because he was like, this is so fascinating. And, you know, there was a chance for him to learn about HIV, to learn about how to protect yourself, prep, getting tested. And that was, yeah, that was when I realised that actually people ask me, how do you be an activist? Because they see, you know, I'm on the rain and doing this, that and the other. And actually... Being an activist is, is just on a daily basis. If you're passionate about something, if you're passionate about changing the world, you can do that in the smallest, tiniest way. And those have ripple effects. So be brave in the conversations that you have with people, but always make sure that you're safe.
0: Um, and now it's time for my quickfire round. So answer the first thing that comes to mind. Favourite LGBTQ okay. TV show?
1: Um, oh, queer as folk.
0: Favourite LGBTQ comedian? uh Alan Carr. LG- oh no, Tom Allen. oh Okay, Alan Carr, Alan Carr, and Tom Allen,
1: and Sue Perkins. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, <last. laughs> I've broken the rules.
0: Favorite LGBTQ artist.
1: Um, Ollie Alexander.
0: Favorite LGBTQ book.
1: Um, oh gosh, I'm reading one called "Coming Out Stories" um, by Emma Goswell. It's great.
0: Favorite LGBTQ film
1: um uh, what's the one set in Yorkshire why have I forgot its name oh, gods and country yeah gods Own country that one
0: <laughs> favorite LGBT play
1: uh angels in America
0: and you're inspiring legions of LGBT but who inspires you
1: um I'm gonna say so uh, there's a guy called on Twitter called Tom Positive Lad and he came out um, a number of years ago, and he's an amazing activist. I sent him a message. I think it was in 2012 um, on Twitter because he just sort of come out and it, it got loads of attention and press. And I just mess, I messaged him, him saying, you know, you're really inspiring, and I really hope. That one day I can be in your position. And then um, he he messaged me a couple of weeks ago after It's a Sin had come out um, and all well, the art, you know, I've been on loads of different news networks and channels. And he sent me that, he sent me a screenshot of that message. Aww. And I and he was just, he just went, Look how far you've come. And I was just like, that's incredible. We, we've never met, but actually just to show and 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 I know that there are people now getting in touch with me saying, I hope I can. Come out in the future, so I, I feel like the baton is being passed, and so yeah. So, um, big up Tom for being a really in, a big inspiration in my life.
0: And um, your work crosses so many cultural spectrums. You've done comedy, TV, poetry, theatre, art. What arena would you like to conquer next?
1: <laughs> well um, a publisher has been in touch with me about writing a novel which I've never done before so maybe a novel and um and then maybe maybe writing maybe writing for television who knows who knows but I am also starting the process of developing a new show for theatre as well so um so that should be 2022 there should be a new show by Nathaniel J Hall um out there called Toxic this is working title at the minute but yeah who knows you know there are plans in place but also I'm a great believer in just going where the universe takes me so who knows what's around the corner
0: and in your play you mentioned writing a letter to your 16 year old self what would you put in a letter to yourself now following the success you've had
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, what I actually say in the, in the letter that I wrote originally was cut your hair. And actually looking at my hair at the minute because i are in <laughs> lockdown, I give myself the same advice because it's, it's really long. Um, I just think it's such a cliche, isn't it? But it gets better. And actually what I would say to my 16 year old self is there is no shame in being gay. It's so hard to unpick the shame about being gay and about gay sex. And it's OK to say it's OK to say no. And it's OK to enjoy gay sex as well. And it's OK to explore and find out what's right for you. And don't assume that you need to do certain things because that's what other gay people are doing. You know, uh, be, be your own person. Um, explore what being gay means to you and you only. Yeah, don't fall into the trap of thinking that you have to behave or be a certain way to be a gay man and being gay is wonderful you know we talk about lots of the challenges of being gay but also it's a gift i always say this to people who say what what's the best thing to say if my child comes out as lgbtq and i'm like don't just say that you accept them Like you celebrate them, like throw a party because it is an absolute, it is a gift to have an LGBTQ child.
0: And finally, what's coming up for you in 2021?
1: Hopefully, if Miss Rona behaves, first time we'll be back on UK tour. Also my theatre company, Debbie Theatre, we've just um, launched our playwriting course for LGBTQ people. So we're about to announce uh, the five people who've been successful on that. And they get a very generous £1,000 bursary as well, which is great. And and we're we're really hoping to develop LGBTQ talent and hopefully in the future see a real uh, wealth of new LGBTQ work come out of that. Uh, we're developing our company. We've got a new show in another new show in development. It's called The Alleyway of Dreams, um, and that's by my co artist director Chris Hoyle. So hopefully, we'll have a new show out um, either late this year or early next year. And like I say, who knows what's around the corner? Um, who, when my agent might call me and say, "Oh, there's been a there's been an offer of this audition," um, although I'm just not quite sure how I can really top being in a Russell T Davis. <laughs> TV drama. I think I have peaked right at the start of my career. Really, you need to
0: make something <laughs> else and talk to you again.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh,
0: thanks so much for chatting to me, Nathaniel. I'm sorry I kept you for so long. I had so many things I wanted to ask you, but um... oh,
1: it's absolutely fine. It's been a joy. It's really set me up for the for the day and the week. this oh, has, So I thank did. you.
0: As Nathaniel mentioned, It's a Sin has had a tremendous impact on the discussion of HIV. And testing increased fourfold following its premiere. Everyone plays a part in helping to end all new HIV transmissions by 2030. And anyone who is sexually active should get tested once a year or every three months if they are not regularly using protection or have casual partners. To find out how to get tested in the UK, visit nhs.uk forward slash conditions forward slash HIV-and-AIDS forward slash diagnosis. If you want to learn more, there are some wonderful charities out there doing amazing work, such as Terence Higgins Trust, tht.org.uk, the National AIDS Trust, nat.org.uk, and George House Trust, ght.org.uk, to name but a few.